The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are starting a new series of messages, slowly working our way through the book of 1 Peter. should be six to eight months long. Uh, my greatest desire for you as your pastor is that you would know God intimately and you would live your life for him. And the only way we can really know God is by knowing and understanding the words that he has given us here in the Bible, okay? You cannot come to know God in a clear and intimate way away from his word, okay? Or you're getting, you're getting some kind of secondhand knowledge, right? From preachers on the internet or article, magazine articles. The way we come to know Christ in the fullest sense is through his word, And the best way to come to a thorough understanding of the Bible is, you know, putting it simply, by spending a lot of time in it. And for us as a church, the best way to do that is by preaching through entire books of the Bible verse by verse. And so that's our modus operandi at Sacred City. We primarily go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We usually do a New Testament book. Then we flip over and do an Old Testament book. That way we're getting a a well-balanced diet of the Word of God and we're coming to understand more of the grand story that God has been telling since the beginning of time. About six weeks ago, we finished our uh, year-long study through the book of Exodus, uh, the second book of the Old Testament. And today we come to the book of 1 Peter. This is a different type of book. It's a New Testament epistle. And the word epistle just means letter. So the book of 1 Peter is actually a letter that has been written, and verse 1 shows us who the author is. It was written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, first off, who is Peter? What was Peter like? Well, we know by reading in the four Gospels that Peter was a fisherman. He was married He owned a fishing business in Galilee with his brother Andrew. He was Jewish, but was not one of the highly educated or overly religious. He was a fisherman in all sense of the word. But then one day, his brother Andrew, who had become a disciple of John the Baptist, drags Peter along to come hear this radical new preacher that had just burst onto the scene at the age of about 30. Andrew says, come see this guy named Jesus. He preaches and teaches like nobody I've ever seen. You thought John was something, you gotta see Jesus. And from what we can tell from the gospel accounts, the first time Peter met Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, come follow me. This was the call to drop everything in his life to literally drop his fishing nets, to close the doors of his fishing business and come be a disciple of Jesus. Come live with Jesus, walk with Jesus, teach with Jesus, minister with Jesus. 
In this moment, Jesus chose Peter. He looked along out on the masses and he said, Peter, come follow me. Okay, very specific call there. Jesus chose Peter. Jesus said, Peter, if you come follow me, I will teach you how to fish for people. I will make you into an evangelist, a missionary, a person who knows how to bring other people into the kingdom of God. And Jesus right there calls Peter Kephas, which means the rock. Peter's new name, this kind of nickname, as it were, is the rock. And at this first encounter with Jesus, Peter drops his nets, he leaves his fishing business behind, and he begins to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Then one night, as he's following Jesus, one night Jesus leaves all the disciples, he goes out and he spends all night alone with God the Father in prayer, and he comes back to his disciples the next morning, and he chooses, out of his disciples, and there was many of them, he chooses 12 apostles, Okay? Peter is chosen to be one of these 12. Now, an apostle is, is one of Jesus' chief disciples. Okay? They're going to carry on the ministry uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. They're the leaders of the church. Um, they have a special authority given to them by God. And every time the apostles are listed in the New Testament, in the Gospels, guess whose name is first? Peter. Peter's name always comes first. Now, if we were to stop the story right there, we would think, man, we need to read this book because it sounds like Peter was like Jesus's Navy SEAL, like he's on the tip of the spear. He's the top guy in all the ranks. And honestly, that, honestly that's not too far from the truth, but the rest of the story of Peter's life is actually a lot more interesting, and I would say more humane it's more nuanced, it's more broken, it's more wishy-washy. See, as you continue to study the life of Peter, you learn that Peter was a very complicated man. On the one hand, Peter is the first of all the apostles to recognize and to vocalize that Jesus wasn't just a normal rabbi, he wasn't just a good moral teacher, but he was instead the divine son of God. He was the Messiah, I have it on the screen. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? The son of man, that's Jesus. That's his favorite term for himself. It refers back to the son of man in Daniel. And they said, some think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, now this is it. Simon Peter, he's the first to speak up most of the time. He's first to step out. He's bold. He's a D. He's an eight on the Enneagram, okay? If you know any of that stuff, Peter's out there. He's putting himself out there. This is what he says. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I can just imagine him saying it and waiting. Am I right? Am I right? And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's uh, Jonah was Simon's dad's name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. 
Then on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus here says that Peter has had a divine revelation from the Father, that God the Father has revealed the true divine identity of Jesus to Peter, and Peter was the first to confess that true identity. And Jesus says, I'm going to use this revelation and I'm going to use Peter to build my church and hell will not prevail against it. See here, Peter, wow, Peter is showing himself to be the man, right? But then we keep reading, literally one verse later, okay? One verse later, you are the son of God. You are the Christ. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. One verse later, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now I can imagine Peter is saying, who do you, and in one sense, like first off, you're the, I just said you're the Messiah. You just said I was right. Now you're talking about dying. Those things don't go together, right? And then on the other sense, he's like, nobody's going to get you. Nobody's going to kill you. I'm right here by you. Like, you've got 12 guys. We're going to protect you. Nobody's going to get you. We're, you're going to be fine, Jesus. He takes him aside. He's like, no, you're not going to die. What are you talking about? We got your back. And Jesus says this. Far, or no, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Let's just, let's sit on that for a second. You are a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter here goes from hero to zero pretty quick. What do you do when the kindest, most gentle, most loving person on the planet looks at you and calls you Satan? That one had to hurt. I was going to sting a bit. I, I preferred the rock. I don't know about this Satan thing. But Peter doesn't take offense. He doesn't walk away from Jesus because of this harsh word. And Jesus was not a harsh person, but I don't know how to classify calling someone Satan in anything other than harshness. I mean, he could have said it sweet, but you're still calling someone Satan to his face. I imagine Peter just melted in the moment. Satan? You just said, I'm blessed. In another place, when Jesus was speaking of the future reality of the Lord's Supper that we're going to partake in today. He said, everyone must eat my flesh and drink my blood, okay? They didn't really understand what was going to happen at the Last Supper. They didn't really understand the sacrament of communion and the Lord's Supper that was going to take place. And so it was really, when Jesus said it, it was really confusing to people, all right? It caused many of them to stumble. This is how John describes it in John chapter 6, verse 66. After Jesus said this, many of his disciples turned back 
and no longer walked with him. Now that just should teach us something. Jesus said something that was very ambiguous. You need to eat my body and drink my blood. And he kind of dropped the mic and walked away. And people said, that's hard. I'm not into that. I'm going to turn around and walk away. And Jesus didn't go, oh, let me clarify. He didn't go, oh, I don't want people to leave. Oh my goodness, I'm really concerned about it. Jesus was completely fine making an ambiguous, kind of confusing statement and people not understanding and walking away from him. All right? And then this is what he says. So Jesus said to the 12, he uses this as a, a discipleship moment to teach his apostles. He says this. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You, and he sounds, you alone have the words to eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what Peter's doing here is like, I don't understand this blood drinking, flesh eating thing. I don't get it, but I know that you're the Son of God. So I'm going to hang on for the ride here. I'm going to ride it out see what's going on. I don't know why you called me Satan. I don't understand why you think you're the son or you are the son of God. You are the Messiah, but you think you're going to go die on a, on a cross. This doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to hold on because I've been the, the question in my soul, are you the son of God? That's already been sealed. That's already been answered. And if you're the son of God, I'm willing to walk with you and trust you no matter how confusing my life gets, no matter how confusing some of your teaching gets, gets. And then, of course, there's Peter's most famous confession of all. No matter what anybody else does, I will not betray you. I will not leave you, right? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, yes, you will. When I need you the most, you'll betray me three times. Luke 22 Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now that's interesting. Jesus is saying, well, Peter's like, well, at least I'm not Satan anymore. At least Satan's somebody else. Satan is desired to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And look at this. And when you have turned again, when you have returned, when you have repented, so Jesus knows he's going to fail. He knows he's going to walk out of, walk away from him. But he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. Jesus says, you're going to betray me, Peter. You're a rather shifty rock. You aren't near as stable as you think you are. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Your faith will bend. You will sin. You will walk away from me. You will abandon me in my time of need, but your faith will not break. When you have repented, strengthen your brothers. Fascinating picture into the sovereignty of God, into the the authority of Jesus. And here, and then Jesus goes on, of course, and is betrayed and is crucified. 
And what does Peter do? Peter betrays Jesus three times, denies him three times, and then Peter goes back to his fishing business. He goes back to his fishing business confused and broken. But then the resurrected Jesus Christ comes and meets Peter on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. See, Jesus refuses to let Peter return to his old life, dejected and defeated. Jesus knew when he first called Peter what type of man he was. He knew he was pugnacious. He knew that he would step out and put his foot in his mouth. He knew that he had a higher understanding or higher thought of himself. He was proud. He thought he could really handle the weight of persecution. He thought he he was going to stand strong in the midst of any storm. Jesus knew that Peter was weaker than Peter thought he was. But Jesus also knew that when he failed, Jesus was going to pursue him and show him how how much more he loved him than Peter could ever imagine. I imagine a guy like Peter was thinking, you know what, my sense of strength, my sense of authority, my sense of power, my willingness to step out there and lead, Jesus probably chose me because he needed a guy like this. He probably looked around at the other disciples and go, you know, Judas ain't going to do it, right? He probably, no, I'm not saying, this is conjecture. He probably didn't, you know, he's, he sees himself as a leader amongst men. And Jesus had to show him, right? He wasn't chosen because he was a great leader. He was chosen because Jesus loved him and Jesus was going to make him into a great leader, not through pride, but through humility. And so Jesus goes and finds Peter and it's here where the post-resurrected Jesus pursues Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks this question and Peter says, yes, all three times. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Basically, Jesus is saying, I called you into ministry get back to work. Get back to the ministry. Get back to preaching the gospel and making disciples. My plan for you hasn't changed. Your sin, your screw up, your betrayal hasn't changed my plan. Go fish for people, Peter. Then Peter, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, becomes this powerful preacher He's a church planter. He's a leader in Jerusalem. And under his leadership, in one day, the church grew from about 120 people to 3,000. And he organized them together into small little house churches where they studied the scriptures together. They prayed together. They ate together. They shared their resources together where no one was uh, needy among them because the wealthy shared with the poor. And they all shared their resources together. And Acts 4.33 says, great grace was upon them all. Peter is leading this new church. But then it seems that Peter begins to travel as he planted the church there in Jerusalem. And as he led it, he then begins to travel around the world or as a missionary. We know this because Paul uses him as an example in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, saying that Peter would take his wife along with him on his missionary travels. And about 20 years later, after um, Jesus is dead and resurrected, uh, Peter goes to Rome and he starts church planting, making disciples in Rome. And after about being there for about 10 years in Rome, Peter writes this letter. We only have two letters from Peter, prominent apostle. The book of Mark is based on his eyewitness testimony. We we studied that last year or the year before. And then now we have first and second Peter. And as he's writing this, about 30 years removed from Jesus' death and resurrection, I want you to hear this. Peter himself, as, he write, as he's writing to these believers, 
Peter is about three years away from being martyred. And church history tells us that when it came to the time of Peter's death, he was being martyred for his faith under the persecution of Nero. And, he's, and they, they were going to crucify him. And he said, I'm not worthy to die the death of my Savior. Crucify me upside down. And so the apostle Peter spends his last breath on this earth, crucified upside down for his faith. A man who denies Jesus, a man who was called by Jesus, who denied Jesus, and then was redeemed and restored by Jesus, goes out being crucified upside down. And this is the man who's writing this letter that we're beginning to study this morning. Now, a guy with a story like that has, you know, has probably got a lot to teach us about walking with the Lord. Right? There's a lot in his story that can speak to us, right? His, his you know, pugnaciousness of getting out there, that might speak to some of us, but some of his, his timidness when he, was, when he needed to be pugnacious, when he needed to step out and be bold, he was timid. Some of that could speak to us, but also his ability to suffer, his ability to be persecuted, his ability to stand up under pressure. I think we can all learn something from him. But there's another great reason that I think we need to throw ourselves into the study of this book. And what I want us to do as a church, I want you to start reading 1 Peter. I want you to start reading it. I want you to start reading it every day. Listen, it's five chapters. If somebody memorizes the whole book, five chapters, I will take you to Bass Street Shop House on me, okay? On me. Do it. It can be done. I promise you, it can be done. Right? I want us to dig down into this book because I think God has something special for us to say. It's five to, to say to us. There's five chapters that, that Peter's writing. And I think the more I've studied kind of the culture of this book of First Peter, the more I kind of see correlations between that culture and the culture that we're living in or the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Peter says, look at verse one. Let's, let's get in there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing with authority of Jesus Christ to those, look, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now you right there say, this is why I don't read the Bible. First, first, right away, jump, right? On jump, we got three words that I don't even know what mean. Elect, exiles, dispersion. What does that mean? Well, we're going to get into all that. I know they need some explanation. Elect, I'm going to say this, elect means chosen by God. We're going to get into that. I'll study it a little bit more. Now, what is, Pont I'm just going to do this, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Where is that? It's modern day Turkey. And right now, uh, we have an Acts 29 church plant we have a church planter planted in Turkey. Right now, 98% of Turkey is Muslim. And we have a church planter planting right there, right where this book is, is being written to. We have a church planter right now preaching the gospel. Excited about that. Probably right now he's doing it. Peter says he's writing to elect exiles. Now, those two words need some explanation. I'm going to take exile first because elect has some modifiers coming up in the next verse. So what does it mean to be, quote, an exile of the dispersion? 
Well, Peter here is making an Old Testament reference to when Israel got carried off into Babylon. They were dispersed. It's called the diaspora of the Jews. They were carried off into other nations, other lands. When Babylon came and conquered Israel, they forcibly removed the majority of the people from Israel and made them live in Babylon. Why? Because when you conquer a land, you don't want that land reorganizing, reconstituting itself, and then attacking you, right? You want to, you want to, um, you want to take it, and you want to conquer it, and you want it to become a part of Babylon. So you take its leaders, and you take its people, and you take its women, and you bring them to Babylon, and you try to just snuff out the culture. You try to destroy Israel. Well, Israel, now that they're carried off and now they're, they're, they're exiles, they're out of their homeland and they're in another country, they now have to learn how to live in a culture that is hostile to them, right? They had to learn how to keep their cultural distinctiveness. They, had to, they wanted to still be Jews while living in a land that was contrary to the one they grew up in. So the Israelites, think about this. We just came out of Exodus. We should have a good understanding of what's going on here. The Israelites, they had the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God to obey that, that made them different from the surrounding nations, right? They had the, um, the Book of the Covenant, the requirements for right worship. This is how you worship the God of Israel. They can't do that now because they're in a land that's contrary to them. They don't have their temple. They don't have their priests. They can't offer right sacrifices and worship God rightly. They've got all these problems now. What are they going to do? How are they going to live in a land that's hostile to them? Well, basically, if you get carried off into Babylon, now I'm going to say this. Think about this. Think if, God forbid, ISIS were to attack our country and carry us and defeat our country and carry us off to the Middle East. Think about how displaced you would feel. That would be a diaspora. That would be a dispersion. You would be an exile in a foreign land. You wouldn't know the language. You wouldn't know the, the customs. Everything that you're used to around here would be gone, right? Whitey's ice cream, no. Distant memories. Baseball games down at the park, distant memories. Farmer's market, distant memories. Comfortable neighborhood, distant memory. Being able to gather in a church like this, distant memory. Having a band like we got up here leading us in worship, distant memory. Now you have two options if that happens to you. One, you assimilate into the host culture. That means you become a Middle Eastern person, okay? In this situation, you become an Assyrian. You begin to eat like the Assyrians, dress like the Assyrians, talk like the Assyrians, worship like the Assyrians. You assimilate into the culture. The, the, the prevalence of our Western culture, this is one of the reason that many um, Muslims have such a problem with our country is because when they come here, most of their kids or many of their kids assimilate into our culture and become just American teenagers, fascinated with what they wear, fascinated with what's on their iPod, fascinated in the next big thing, the next greatest thing, Facebook, the whole thing. And so they fear that assimilation into our culture. So that's generally what happens. When you get carried off into Babylon, first thing that you can do, you have, a, you have a decision, you can assimilate. Now, if you assimilate into the culture, for the most part, things go well for you, right? You just become a citizen of that country. You learn how to adopt its practices. But here's what you lose. You lose your distinctiveness. You lose the culture that you came from. 
right? And that's a problem for Israel because God is creating this culture and this is a holy culture that they're meant to have. And so they can't just assimilate into the culture. They have to remain worshipers of the one true God, okay? Here's the second thing that you can do. First, you can assimilate to the host culture. Second, you can isolate from the host culture and try to keep your cultural heritage alive. This is kind of the definition of ghettos. Like a culture pulls away into one area of the city, one area of the country, and they begin to try to uh, persevere and try to keep their cultural heritage. They live, so for us, we would, if we were in uh, Iraq, we would pull off into a neighborhood and we're gonna try to create a little American enclave in this neighborhood. We're gonna try to live like Americans. We're gonna try to keep our culture alive. So those are the two predominant ways. You isolate yourself, try to keep the culture at bay, try to keep the world at bay, and and you isolate yourself or you assimilate. But it's interesting, when Israel gets carried off to Babylon, God gives them a third way. He doesn't allow them to assimilate, nor does he allow them to isolate from the culture and just create a little Jewish enclave in Babylon. Instead, this is what God says. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and says this in Jeremiah 29. Thus, and it's on the screen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the, look, look at the word, all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is, his, this is his plan. This is how you live as an exile in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city. Look, where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now here is a third way. God's saying, I sent you into exile. This idea of being sent, there's a missionary nature there that God's saying, I've sent you into this Babylonian culture and I want you to enter into it as a missionary would into a host culture. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For And here's the proper context of this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear me, hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the, all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into, from which I sent you into exile. Okay, Israel was not to fully assimilate into the Babylonian culture, nor were they to totally isolate from it. Instead, God calls them to, listen, carefully, prayerfully, redemptively engage that culture until God moves. He says, build homes, build gardens, marry off your kids, seek the welfare of the city. That means love the city, work for the good of the city. This is a Babylonian city. 
a pagan city. And God says, work for the good of it while you're praying to me, while you're seeking me. And he's saying this, I sent you there as missionaries. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will bring you back to a good land. I know the plans I have for you. These are missionary plans. I sent you there into Babylon for my purposes. Live distinctly there, engage with culture in a distinctly Jewish redemptive way and I will move. It's unique. Scholar Karen Jobes calls this, this is what she calls this, a differentiated engagement with culture. It's not assimilation and it's not isolation. Israel was to dwell respectfully in their host nation, but listen, but participate in its culture only to the extent that its values and customs coincide with their own that they wish to preserve. Israel was to live like missionaries in the Babylonian culture. They weren't meant to become Babylonian. They weren't meant to isolate and just stay Jewish. They were meant to be on mission, Jewish people on mission in Babylon. Now, what does that all have to do with 1 Peter? Well, Peter is using this as an illustration to what's going on in these first century Christians. Here's what's going on. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to these people spread over uh, you know, modern day Turkey. They hear it, they believe it, and their whole life is turned upside down. They are no longer pagan. They're Christian. They don't worship many gods. They worship one God and his son, Jesus Christ. They can no longer say Caesar is Lord. They now say Jesus is Lord, and that gets them in all kind of trouble. That's seen as, insurrection, as insurrectionist behavior. All of a sudden, these people who have believed the gospel and they've lived in this culture their whole life, all of a sudden they wake up one morning and they look around and they realize how jacked up the culture that they grew up in is. They can no longer participate in the drunken parties that they used to do. We're going to see this in 1 Peter. They can no longer be sexually promiscuous like they used to. They no longer work on Sundays. That's a problem. Their employers get mad at them. When these people converted to Christ, they immediately experienced a sense of alienation. All of a sudden, now that I'm a Christian, I don't feel like I belong in this city anymore. I don't feel like I belong in this nation anymore. I feel like an alien. I feel like a foreigner. I feel like an exile. And Peter says, yes, you are. You are aliens. You are exiles. To be in exile means to be a stranger, to be a foreigner. It means you're living in a place that is not your true home. You don't fit in. You can't just assimilate. You'll have to begin to live on the margins of society, and you're going to be seen as strange. I alluded to it today. You know, 50, 60, even 100 years ago, you know, Christianity had such a hold on America that, that the, the norms we read in the Bible were seen as kind of norms of everyday life. 
right? And as we get farther and farther away from this, you know, this Christendom, this idea that the world just under, or our culture just understands Jesus and understands the Bible, and they all kind of have the same moral values, the farther away we drift, the more strange we become, the, we, the more weird we become. Now, listen, it's important for us. Sometimes we read book, these books and we, we read, he's going to talk about fiery trials in this book. He's going to talk about suffering. And you know what we immediately do when we hear those words? We immediately go, oh, I'm glad I'm not experiencing any of that. Suffering. I bet they're being killed. I bet they're being thrown to the lions because we've heard preachers talk about that all the time. That's not what's going on here. The suffering experienced in this book is not that type of suffering. That suffering's coming later. In a few years, Nero's going to do that, but it's not coming yet. This is how scholar Karen Jones describes it. Listen, the Christians of Asia Minor were facing troubling times. Because of their faith in Christ, they were being persecuted through social ostracism. Slander and malicious talk undermined their relationships with associates and family. It threatened their honor, their honor in the community and possibly jeopardized their livelihood. Now, what is ostracism? To be ostracized. That means you're excluded by kind of general consent from common privileges of the society or social acceptances, acceptance. Now, listen, I'm going to say, this is, might be controversial. 30, 30 years ago or so, homosexuals in our, in our culture were ostracized, right? They were ostracized. They were marginalized. They were put away. The, the, the term they used, they were in the closet, right? It was unacceptable behavior. It was seen as deviant behavior. People looked on them negatively, looked down on them, and it was, they were ostracized. That's what it means to be ostracized, to, push, to be pushed on the margins of society. And, and, and Karen Job says here, that was the experience of these new believers here in Turkey. They weren't being thrown to the lions yet. They weren't being drug off, deported, thrown in jail. Not yet, at least. At this time, the suffering, the exile, was a social one. They were being slandered. They were being made fun of. I can't believe you would believe that. That's so backwoods. That's so whatever. Their employees were looking down on them. Their friends and family were cutting them off because they would no longer do the things that they used to do, participate in the, the works of the flesh, the normal rhythms of a pagan culture. They would no longer live that way, and now they're being ostracized because of it. And Peter is writing to these believers who are feeling marginalized. They don't fit in anymore. They're kind of judged and they're outsiders and they're suffering. He's writing to them to encourage them to help them navigate their way through a really difficult season in their life, right? They're suffering inside of a culture that is hostile to them. And so I think we need to listen up here. We need to study this book and get really acquainted with it because I think we are in a really similar time in our society and a time in our culture where to live as a Christian could get you fired. To live as a Christian could cost you your business, and it has over the past few years. I mean, 
One specific example is Christian bakers and Christian people who own reception halls and Christian people that own places of weddings refusing to do weddings uh, for homosexual people because they have a religious belief that marriage is between a man and a woman only. And they say, this is my, I'm not judging that person. I'm not condemning that person. But in, in my business, we're not going to serve this. We're not going to serve this because I don't believe in it. I think my faith contradicts what's taking place here. And I can't give my conscience over to that. And the government is stepping in and saying that's discrimination and and it's crushing these small businesses. We're standing up for what you believe in could literally cost you your finances, could literally cost you your business. Being a Christian in our culture now can cost you some relationships. Believing the Bible and attempting to live according to it is becoming more and more strange in our society. And here we have old, wise Pastor Peter who spent three years of his life walking and talking with Jesus. And how is he going to speak into this cultural moment? How is he going to help these Christians who are suffering because they're Christians? Right? Nero has not you know, given his edict yet to start killing Christians. There's just this animosity. There's just this weirdness. There's just this separation. People are becoming Christians and they're living in new ways and the people are rejecting it. What's Peter going to say to him? Now, this is fascinating to me. And I don't have near enough time to have gone it. Peter, he's going to tell him who God is. He's going to remind them who God is. First thing, Peter is not just going to get all sappy with them, right? He's going to give them some meat. He's going to give them something to chew on. He's going to give them some theological depth right away. I, I wish I could write a letter like this. One verse in, and he's just dropping gospel bombs. Now, let me show you, okay, before I just say that. Here it is. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, all three of those things are modifiers on the, on the terms here, elect exiles. So he's saying, this is who you are. Listen, hear this. This is your identity This is who you are. This is why you are who you are. Because God is who he is, and this is what God has done. Now, I'm going to explain that. This means he's going to show us who God is, what God has done, and how God has made us into different people, how God has shaped and changed their identity, okay? And we see right away here the whole trinity in Peter's introduction, right? We have the Father, We have the Son and we have the Holy Spirit, but they're in a little different order than normal. We have the Father, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Son. And God, it shows us here, God exists as this triune community. That means intimate community is at the heart of the universe. This is why we crave relationships and we crave community. And this is why God gave us a church of people, because he himself is a community. This is how God is himself love. Now listen. So Peter starts off, this is who God is. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. God is triune. Secondly, this is what God has done. Here we go. So you are elect exiles. Elect means chosen. 
You have been chosen by God to be missionaries, exiles to this lost culture that you find yourself in. Now, what does it mean to be chosen? Here's the three modifiers. Look, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This term foreknowledge is very interesting. It doesn't mean what we think it would mean right away because the term to know in Hebrew, it doesn't mean intellectual knowledge. It's like this, when, 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 the, when the gospel writers say, Mary never knew a man, she was a virgin, right? That's not mean she did not have intellectual knowledge of male species, right? It means she did not have intimate knowledge, right? She was not, she was not loved. She was not in a relationship where she was sexually active. That's what that means. And so this idea, this word foreknowledge does not mean that God looks down the corridors of time, somehow sees the people who will choose him and then chooses them to love him or chooses them to love. That's not what it means. Foreknowledge literally means foreloved. That before, this is what Peter's saying. You are elect exiles because God, before the foundations of the world, chose to love you, chose to set his love on you. And all your life, he's been working out his love in your life. He's been calling you. He's been working. He's been, and then we're going to get into the second part. He's given you the Holy Spirit. So Peter here reminds them, this is what God's done. He's called you. He's chosen you. He's elected you. That's what the Father has done before the beginning of time. Then he says, you were chosen in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit, when God chooses a person before the foundations of the world, he, 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 when, and, they, and, they, and they are born into the earth, he is sending the Holy Spirit to them and the Holy Spirit is working out all the stuff on the inside that has to take place for this person to eventually put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is sealing them. The Holy Spirit is setting them apart. That means everything you've went through in your life, good and bad, was ordained by the Lord to get you to this moment, to get you into the kingdom of God, to get you into the faith that he chose you and he sanctified you through the power of the Holy Spirit. He set you apart for his work. It also means no one just walks into the kingdom of God. You're called there. You're chosen to come in. The Holy Spirit, you know what Jesus says? The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. That means no, no human being just walks into the kingdom. You have to be born again. You have to have a spiritual makeover, a spiritual renewal, a spiritual birth. That means at first, everything about Christianity maybe turns you off. You saw it as repressive. You saw it as, you know, stifling. You didn't see it as attractive at all. You saw it as narrow-minded. And then all of a sudden, after, you know, the Holy Spirit is applying the work of Jesus to your heart. And one morning you wake up and you realize that this is what you want. And you don't just, that you don't just like this thing. You love God because of it. You love Jesus. You love the gospel. That things change on the inside of you. Peter's going to show that here moving forward. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are now counted holy and counted righteous before God. And we're growing in actual holiness all our life. Look what he says there. So your chosen, your election was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
So God set his love on you. You're not a Christian because you chose him first. You chose him because God already had chosen you. He loved you and you received his love and then you chose him. And the Holy Spirit is the one doing all this. And why is he doing it? He's doing it for the Trinitarian purpose for obedience to Jesus Christ. For obedience. Now listen, heaven, our inheritance in heaven, getting to meet God, that is, a, that is one of the reasons we're saved. We do get that, but that is not, you were not saved just so you can go to heaven. You were saved He's saying this, you're elect exiles. You were chosen and sent into this culture as missionaries, obey Jesus Christ. Live like a missionary where God has saved you. We are saved, we are born again for obedience to Jesus. That means if we are a Christian, our life should be getting more and more conformed to the life of Jesus. He is our standard. We should be getting deeper and deeper into community in a culture that is getting more and more individualized. We should be getting more and more generous and kind in a culture that is more and more divided and money-hungry driven by the dollar. I want you to think about this. Chosen by God the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus, the whole trinity of God was involved in your salvation. In getting you here in this moment, God has been at work before you were born, loving you and setting your life on a trajectory and a path to get you to this moment, you are an elect exile, chosen by the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus. Now I want you to think about Jesus as I close. Jesus was the great elect exile. He was chosen by God to come to this earth, and Jesus did it willingly, lovingly. He lived, think about this, he lived his life on this earth as a Jewish first century man, but he did not assimilate into the culture, nor did he isolate himself from the culture. The religious leaders couldn't stand Jesus because he would eat with sinners. He, wouldn't, he, would, he would step into culture and redeem things instead of just isolate himself from it. Jesus lived like a good missionary. He accepted the good things of culture. He ate food. He drank wine. He rejected the bad things of culture. He rejected the religiosity. He rejected the pride of man. He rejected the, the, def, the sexual definition that was, that was ruling during his age. He rejected wealth and status. And Jesus redeemed the things in the culture that were neutral and that could be redeemed. He turned homes into places of worship and places of healing. He took bread and he fed the hungry. He took a fisherman and he redeemed this man and turned him into the, one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen. And Peter taught him how to fish for people. Jesus was a missionary who knew how to live, move, and have his being in a culture that was not his own. Peter says, that is how 
we are supposed to live in our culture today. We cannot blindly accept everything our culture believes or everything our culture tries to shove down our throat. Nor do we need to hide away in bunkers or move to Montana to create some kind of alternate community. No, God has chosen us. Can I, I'm gonna speak to one thing. As we become Christians, we're walking in the light, we're gonna be getting more and more weird. Let me just show one thing that I think is an inconsistency with our culture right now. If, I, if, so, if, a, if, a, if a six foot woman comes to you and she weighs 85 pounds and she says, I'm fat, I'm overweight. You look, our culture has taught us to look at her and say, no, you're not. Your body is lying to you. Your mind is lying to you. Your eyes are lying to you. You probably have anorexia, anorexia bulimia, something. You are not fat. Our culture teaches us that, rightly, rightly. If a man comes to you and says, if a biological male comes to you and says, I'm a woman, our culture is teaching us to say, okay then, yes, you are. Those are inconsistent. This is a, a sexuality that's framed by our culture. It's not framed by reality. It's not framed by biology. It's not framed by science. It's being created in the cultural milieu that we're living in where sex rules the day. You, sex is off limits. Sexuality, gender, off limits. I can do, it's individualism to the extreme. I can choose whatever I want to be. And, and it's, it, it, we have, it's also inconsistent when it comes to race, right? I can't come and say, you know what? I'm an African-American. Culture says, no, you're not. Shame on you. Why can't I do it with sexuality then? How is that different? It's not. And we're going to resist it because it's anti-reality. It's anti-truth. We're going to stand against it and we're going to get marginalized because of it. We're going to get called bigoted. We're going to get called crazy and we're standing in the truth. And the more we do that and the farther our culture drifts, the, 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 the stranger we become, the more weird we seem. And this is going to cause us here to experience some real suffering like people in Peter's day were experiencing. Now listen, I want to hear that. I want you to hear this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has chosen you. The Spirit has sanctified you. He set you apart. Jesus has died for us to empower us to live right where we are as his elect exiles, his missionaries to this lost American culture that we find ourselves in. And our lives should look radically different from our neighbors who don't know Jesus. Our schedules should look radically different from that of our unbelieving neighbors. Our pace of life should look radically different from that of our unbelieving neighbors. Our spending habits should look different from our unbelieving neighbors. And being different is going to cause us to experience some suffering. We are going to be slandered. 
We are going to be marginalized. Our families and our friends might call us crazy, born-again Bible thumpers. Real Christianity will never fit nice and neatly into a comfortable suburban Midwest lifestyle. What, can I ask you this? What does an elect exile look like in the suburbs? How would Jesus, if Jesus moved into your neighborhood, how would he live in your neighborhood? Jesus is a perfect missionary. What would he do as he come into your neighborhood? I'm going to post an article on the city this afternoon that kind of addresses some of these questions. But right now I want to share one point, and this is from an Acts 29 pastor named Ross Lester in South Africa. If you are a believer, you are an elect exile. You are a missionary. Here's one way that you can live as a missionary. In a suburban life, uh, it can kind of seem like um, an endless routine of running kids to school, grabbing a coffee on the way, long commutes, soccer matches, and weekends that are too short. But the grand narrative of Scripture doesn't exclude people from participation in God's great mission of bringing all things under his rule and reign. And suburban people can and must play their part. And here's a couple ways that, that Ross Lester says to do that. Number one, we need to remember that our homes are mission stations. Our homes are mission stations. They are outposts of hospitality. They are outposts of kindness and grace in an increasingly hostile and post-Christian context. Our homes are orchards in which the fruit of the Spirit can grow and be shared. Our homes should be open in a neighborhood where most homes are closed and we're building taller and taller fences and we're trying to live in the back of our homes now instead of on our front porches, isolating ourselves further and further from community. The Christian home should be different, an outpost of hospitality. He says this, remind them that their jobs are missionary assignments. Their cubicle or corner office or school commute is a place that you are, that a paid, I can't go. Wherever you're called, if it's John Deere or Alcoa or if it's the city, I can't go there. They're not calling a pastor to come in. So what is God doing? God is exiling you into those places. He's sending you on mission into those places as, a, as an elect exile of his gospel. You are a missionary sent into those nooks and crannies that I can't get into. That's why you're there. God elected you. He chose you. He filled you with the Spirit. He put the blood of Jesus on you, and he sent you out as missionaries. And he says this, for those in suburban America, remind them that their money is missional ammunition. Your money isn't just to buy a bigger, better house and a bigger, better car and outfit your kids with nicer clothes. You know what we do with your money at Sacred City? We blow holes through the gates of hell with it. That's what we do with it. We sent, I don't even remember, 20-something thousand dollars down with 180. I got to walk, in, walk through 180, 180 this week and see how those men have put 
they've put that money to work and they've rehabbed the whole place and they've got dreams and vision of, of thousands of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol coming into this place and meeting Jesus and being changed and sent back into the city. We're blowing holes through the gates of hell with it. We're planting churches around the world. We're planting churches in Africa. We're planting churches in Moline. We're planting churches in our Midwest area. We're planting churches in modern day Turkey right now. So yeah, you can hold on to that money. You can buy another latte with it, or we can send it out as missionary ammunition and blow some holes in the gates of hell with it. Think about that. Think about that next time. You just want to, uh, I can't get into it. I'm not going to do that. Sorry. I get a little excited. Now listen, I know, oh man, whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> last thing, last thing. We are not saved by being good missionaries. I want to say this. I'm calling all of us to live differently. This church will look different because of the grace of God. We are going to be countercultural. We will not buy into, buy into the suburban middle-class gospel. We're going to look like Jesus. We're going to, I'm going to do everything in my power to, 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 to keep preaching the gospel to do that. Now listen, but you, no matter how much money you give, you'll never earn your way to Jesus. No matter how kind you are to the poor, you'll never earn your way to Jesus. Right? No matter how far you stay away from the sex and the drugs and all the stuff, you'll never earn your way to Jesus. And you know what? Listen, that's why it says this. You're saved to obedience to Jesus Christ. And, and what, is that, what else does it say? And the sprinkling of his blood. And for those of us who, who are in Exodus, we should be drawn right back to Exodus chapter 24, where all the people were given the commandments, given the law of God. And what did they say? We'll do it, right? Like any great junior hire at a camp experience. I'm never gonna sin again. Jesus forever, right? We'll do everything you say. I'm gonna live like a missionary today. And what does Moses do? Kill an animal, goodness, kill an animal, kills it, sacrifices, sprinkles them with blood. Why? Because your obedience won't save you. You're going to fail as a missionary. Only the blood of Jesus applied to your life saves you. That's it, that's it. And as we come to the table this morning, that's what we're celebrating the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was spilled for us, and we're, we've been chosen, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, we've been sent on mission with Jesus, all because Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve because of our sins. This is the good news of the gospel. Let me pray. Father God, I do thank you for your grace. Thank you for helping me this morning only two verses, but a whole lot to share. I pray that you would help us live in this cultural moment. We know we can't do it on our own. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. We need your gospel. And so, Father, right now, for those in this room who are far from you, would you give them faith to believe? Would they turn from their sin? For those, of you, those in this room who are tight-fisted with their money, would you let them see a bigger picture of the gospel, a bigger picture of what you're doing in our world, and would you open their hands so they could use that money to blow holes in the gates of hell? For those of us who are so individualized, we're so about ourselves, would you soften those walls and draw us into a community where we can be truly known and truly loved? God, help us be different in a good way. Help us be more like Jesus. And this culture is getting farther and farther away from him. I pray this morning 
for all your people. And as we come to your table, may we eat it in worship. Turn from our sin. We repent of the ways that we failed you. And we're reminded once again that you died for us, that you bled for us, and that you rose for us. Let us eat and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.